Welcome to the Cap City Church podcast. This is a recording of our Sunday message. We pray that you're encouraged and challenged as you listen to it. Enjoy. And so if you have your Bible or if you have your scripture of John, we are in John 13. And uh, I'm going to read a massive chunk of it and then we're going to go from there if that's all right. Um, if you want one of these, if you don't have one of these, um, I just want to show you, we've, we bought these at the start of this series for the church. We're going to buy some more because we think we're running out, which is great, which means you've all got one. But basically, it's just the Gospel of John with, with um, uh, some uh, like uh, lines next to the scripture so you can write down um, your notes, your thoughts. Um, I've actually bought the whole of the New Testament in this form, and it is transforming my, uh, my own um, my own journey um, through Scripture. And so, I would encourage you, if you want one, we would love to get get one for you. Uh, please come and speak to one of us. Um, we'll make sure we put that into your hands. Jesus, th- uh, Jesus, thirteen. Why not? John thirteen. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. It was just before the Passover festival. Now, I just want to hold on here because I was talking to Luke about this recently. And just to say that this um, is the Passover and, and for a Jewish community, this is already brimming with significance. The Passover festival already has all the significance of the history of the Jewish nation all the way back to Moses. And Jesus is displaying in this specific one as we read on the deeper meaning of what Passover means. That it is his sacrifice, not the lamb that they're about to share. It is his sacrifice that will bring the final redemption. This act will make them a new people. It is their final exodus and it begins here. So this is already significant, and I've already read like one sentence, but just keep that in mind. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he'd said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, 
But this is to fulfill the passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. If you want to write the little thing about where that came from, that comes from Psalm 41 verse 9. So he who shared my bread has turned against me. That's the reference that comes from. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sends me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which one of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him, and Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Jesus, son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Jesus took the bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus had said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what he needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Jesus had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. Luke mentioned recently that if we want to follow Jesus well, all we have to do is do what he did and say what he said. This seems simple, but why isn't it easy? Why do we find it hard to follow the ways and examples that Jesus set? Why do we find it easy to love our friends but not our enemies? Why do we find it hard to be generous with our time or our money if we're financially or physically lean? Why do we not trust God with today and are anxious about our circumstances? Ultimately, this is because we're human. It's because we were born of Adam, who when he ate the apple, brought sin into the world and exposed our desire not to trust God and want to be our own gods, revealing our sinful nature. We know this is true because take the example of a child. A child is not taught to lie. Yet at their earliest convenience, when their brain is big enough to sort it out, they start to lie. They're really bad at it, but that's what they start to do. Kids will instinctively lie. This is our nature. We naturally do sinful stuff. This passage in John 13 is really familiar to lots of Christians. So lots of you in this room will know this passage. As I was reading it, your mind was going away to like, what are you going to eat for lunch or the list that you've made for shopping or what are you going to do this week? Because you, you know this story. We're offered the ability to see in this story not only what Jesus has asked of us, but what Jesus has done for us. The central sentence in the part that I read of this story is this. He says, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. This is the linchpin of what we're going to be talking about today, mainly. But how do we do this? So because most of you were listening to when I was speaking, thinking about like having a, whether I'm going to have a bath or a shower, whether I'm going to have jam on my toast or whether I'm going to have peanut butter, because you know this story... What I want to do is just mix it up a little bit. So stay with me, because I want to try and tease out a little bit more understanding of this passage. So in the first section between verses 1 to 11, 
Jesus is giving a physical representation of what he came to earth to do. Washing feet. So this is number one. It's a practical demonstration. He's coming to serve. In the second section between 12 and 17, Jesus is explaining to them what the first bit meant and encouraging them and inviting them to do the same thing. The second one is a meaningful invitation. And then the final part, which is 18 to 30, is a section of what could seem like comedy gold or human stupidity. Jesus makes it super clear who's going to betray him, and no one in the room gets it. Why? Like, I'm reading that thinking, like, he literally gives the person who's going to betray him something out loud. He just doesn't, the only thing he doesn't do is say his name, and everyone goes, oh, I wonder who's going to be. It's a weird section of scripture if you read it. So here's what I want to do. I I want you to imagine for a moment that you are in that room. That you are one of the disciples. You could be Simon Peter, who always puts his foot in it, but is super keen and turns good in the end. You could be Matthew or Andrew. Or you could be the disciple that Jesus... Hang on, nobody wants to be that disciple. The guy who refers to himself as the one that Jesus loved. I mean, if you want to be that, you can. You could be John. Anyway, just imagine that you are in that room, sat with your best mates, having a nice meal, looking forward to the festival that is about to take place. You're joking about it, and at times you're just remembering all of the great things that Jesus has done that day. You've eaten your fill, and you've drank some wine, and Jesus gets up and starts preparing himself. He takes a bowl and a cloth like the one the servants of a house would do when you're invited in, and Jesus starts his practical demonstration. He stoops down, and without too many, much talking, he signals to one of the disciples to come over. He starts to wash their feet. And then he signals to you to come over. He starts washing your feet. Now, I know most of us will know this, but we are in the Middle East before proper sanitation and wellies. Right? If not, most, if not all, people walked everywhere, and everything and anything that could be found on the roads and in the gutters would have been found on their feet. So a person who invited you into their house, as much as it's a selfish act on their part, maybe because they needed to wash your feet, because they didn't want whatever was on your feet to be trampled through their house, it was actually a sign of honor and respect to wash the feet of people that were coming to your house. In Luke 7, we read about a woman who used her tears to wash Jesus' feet, when a Pharisee, I think his name's Simon, it just slipped my mind for a moment, invited Jesus into the house, but he didn't bestow on him the proper greeting. So in Luke 7, it says this, Then Jesus turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? When I came to your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she washed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss of greeting, but she has been kissing my feet since I came in. You did not pour oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. I tell you that her many sins are forgiven, so she has showed great love. But the person who only forgiven a little will love only a little. We're going to come back to that story later. So for Jesus, who is the honored teacher and their Lord, for him to be washing their feet would have been totally mind-blowing. So all of a sudden, Peter's response, you can't wash my feet, makes sense. It's mental for your Lord and Savior 
to be on his knees washing your feet. Peter just says what most of us would have probably been thinking. Jesus said to Peter, though, I need to do this. I need to be the one who serves you, who takes on this role so that you can have all that I have. Lost my, lost my place. In Matthew 20, 28, it says, I came, Jesus says this, I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. The power in this act is not the act of washing the feet. It is the fact that Jesus is preparing them to show them what he is going to be doing. He's doing a demonstration. It's a physical representation of what he is going to do. It is sacrificial. It is humble. It is practical. It is meaningful. So Jesus takes away the water. He redresses himself Everyone's sat back down in this room. They're all kind of back to a bit of a normal pace. And then Jesus says this to you all in the room. He says, do you understand what I have done for you? He asks them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. This is Jesus's meaningful invitation. It's not a maybe you should do this. It's not a random request that's like, would you mind if you're popping to the shops just grabbing me an avocado, but if you forget, it doesn't matter. That's not what this is. This is too meaningful. Jesus is asking us to partake in what he is doing. And he's saying this to his disciples. In that room at that time, if I was there in that room and Jesus had just washed my feet and he'd said to me, do as I do, I reckon, even if the fact that I don't like feet, I reckon that I could have probably thought to myself, yeah, I, I can do that. I can wash their feet. But that totally misses the point of what Jesus is doing. Because it's one thing to wash your friend's feet, but remember... Jesus has just washed the feet of Judas, the one who's going to betray him. He says it, he says in verse 10, those who have had a bath only need to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean, but he still washed Judas's feet. Easy to love our friends easy to serve our friends. But what about that person who's betrayed you? What about that person who's hurt you? What about that group who have consistently stayed in the back of your mind and there's a root of just pain and agony in your life because of the injustice that they have done to you? How do you do that? How do we do that? This meaningful invitation that Jesus gives us is not just an act of washing our friends' feet. This meaningful invitation is, is developed in this next section between 21 and, and 30. 
It says it starts by saying that Jesus' spirit was troubled. So he, he, was, he was troubled in spirit because of what was going to happen because he knew that Judas was about to betray him. Gosh, imagine sitting across from your betrayer. Your spirit would be troubled. There is a, a reality to Jesus in this. He's not just holy sitting somewhere else. He's experiencing what we experience. And this is kind of where that comedy central bit comes where they're all like they're all looking at one another and going is it you is it is it me is it you is it who is it who is it that Jesus is saying is going to betray him you know even to the point where like the way that it's written in in this one is that John the one that Jesus loved is reclining next to him and Simon Peter goes psst psst John ask him and John's like no that's weird he's like no ask him because I don't get it and I want to get it because I always put my foot in it and I don't want to put my foot in it anymore Ask him. So John, you know, kind of sidles over. Like they, it's probably not like this, but it's my interpretation. John just leans back on Jesus. Hey, Jesus. Buddy. Pal. Who's going to betray you? Like, it's weird. It is weird if you think about it. It's nuts. But Jesus, in his, great, in his graciousness, in his goodness, he says, okay, like, he said, I'm... The one who will betray me is the one I'm going to give this bread to. And Jesus dips this bread and he gives it to Judas. And I, I just read it and I wonder why the disciples didn't get it. How did they not get that it was Judas who was going to betray Jesus? I just, I, I literally, it blows my mind. I'm just like, how did you not get it? But as I was reading through this and I was looking at some commentaries and different stuff and I was reading about the history of, of this meal and all of a sudden my kind of understanding grew a little bit as to why maybe the disciples just didn't believe it was going to be Judas. It's because at, at these kind of meals, at these Jewish meals, they would have a communal bowl and they would dip bread or dip meat in it and that's got a name. Does anybody know what that name is? She's got it. Yes. It was called the sop. She's got it. And what would happen is the, the person who was the, the host of the meal, when they were at the meal table, there would be a communal bowl, and that host would take uh, the choice bit of bread or the choice bit of meat, and they would dip it in the sop, and they would offer it to the honoured guest or the greatest friend. So no wonder the disciples were like, it can't be Judas. Because he's just been offered the greatest gift at this table. Let that sink in for a minute. Judas, the betrayer of Jesus, was given the greatest gift at that meal table. Jesus was giving him one last moment, one last inkling of salvation. He was given the highest honour to the one who would betray him. So no wonder the other disciples were confused. Why would Jesus give that precious gift to the one person in the room that was going to do that? It was because salvation was at stake. Salvation was at stake. 
Jesus was offering to Jesus that one last meaningful measure of hope to return to the Savior. What Judas was being given, he did not deserve. But Jesus was going to offer it to him. So this kind of brings me to my final question, which is what I asked at the start. Why do we find it so hard to follow Jesus' ways? Why do we find it so hard? But then the reality is, as we look at that and we go, gosh, if I was sat across from my betrayer, would I give him the choice bread? Would I give them the highest honor at that table? It's a bit of a knife to the heart, isn't it? It's a bit of a poke in the ribs. You know when God gives you a little bit of a poke in the ribs? When I asked you to picture yourself in that room with the disciples, which of you pictured yourself as Judas? Maybe one or two. You know, I'm not going to say nobody did. But I would imagine that he's not the common choice when I ask you to picture yourself in that room. But here's the kicker. We're all Judas. We're all Judas. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We need a saviour to take on our sin and redeem our lives because we were never going to be able to do it on our own. And we needed Jesus. We need Jesus to offer us the sop, that offer of salvation. He died as the perfectly innocent son of God in the place of guilty sinners for us. This is at the heart of the good news, the gospel. Paul Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, I make known to you the gospel that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. In Romans, he writes again, while we are still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Peter writes about it. Christ also died for our sins once and for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. He says later, Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. The good news is one of sacrifice of Jesus because Jesus makes a way. This is not just salvation. This is miraculous salvation. Our salvation should not become just an everyday, normal, glib thing as part of our lives that if I go out to the shop and you forget to buy an avocado, salvation is everything. Our salvation should wake us up in the morning with hope in our hearts, with praise on our tongues. Because I wake up every morning and my heart, my natural heart is Judas. And Jesus says, I'm giving you the sop. You deserve salvation because of Christ. Because of what I've done. Because of what I did on the cross. And because I rose again three days later. I remember I told you about the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her tears in Luke 7. And it says in verse 47, I tell you that her many sins are forgiven. So she showed great love. But the person who's forgiven only a little will love only a little. And this can be a difficult thing to kind of get our heads around. But the question that is being asked is, how much have you been forgiven? What worth and value do you put in your salvation? 
Do you think because your life is like that of the Pharisee, of Simon, who invited Jesus into the house, but you know what? He's been to the temple every week. He's careful with his speech. He, he gives his tithes and offerings. He prays that he's mainly fine and Jesus is well an optional extra. Or are you like the woman who was likely a prostitute? Now, we don't know that, but we can surmise that. Who had to do some not great things to very well just likely survive every day. And realized that her circumstance and situation didn't matter because Jesus had redeemed it all. And the problem is, is we could read this. We could read this idea, but the person who's forgiven only a little will, will love only a little. We could read this and think, well, I don't really do anything wrong. When I became saved, I was a kid, and I'm generally a good person. So does that mean that I'll only ever be able to love a little because Jesus only needs to forgive me a little? You've totally missed the point if that's your answer to that question. Our understanding of our forgiveness is linked with our understanding of what sin actually is. This may be a little difficult to hear, but you have sinned too much. Every single person in this room, I can guarantee you have sinned too much to get anywhere near the throne room of God without Jesus. I'm sorry to say it. Practicing the way, great, doesn't make you good enough. Jesus makes you good enough. So if you're Simon or if you're the woman, it doesn't matter. You have a miraculous salvation. Miraculous. We are all sinners. We all fall short. We're not better than the woman in the story. We're not better than Judas at the table. We're not better than Simon Peter who goes on to deny Jesus the night that he dies and then makes good. I'd encourage you to pray, to ask God to show you how utterly miraculous your salvation is. Don't get used to your salvation. So how do we be like Jesus? How do we do it? At the start, I gave you this list, that Jesus gives this practical demonstration, this meaningful invitation, and this miraculous salvation. And he does it in that order for a reason. He wants to show you, he wants to invite you, he wants to save you. He says, I will serve you. It says, for while we were still sinners, Jesus died. I will serve you. And then he says, I will invite you. Because he offers us the invitation. We're not forced into doing it. We're not told we have to. We are invited by the Christ of heaven. And he offers us this miraculous salvation, which is the most precious gift that you will ever receive that comes at no cost to you and all cost to Christ. Here's what I mean when I say I wanted to mix it up a little. Jesus, Jesus did it in this way for a reason. Practical demonstration, meaningful invitation, miraculous salvation. But here's, for us to be able to sit in front of 
our betrayers and our enemies and the people that God has called us to serve and we find it hard to do so. For us to be able to do this, we actually need to live this in the opposite way. We need to sit in the truth of our salvation so that Jesus can offer us this meaningful invitation to engage and serve the world around us. We cannot serve out of a desire just to do good. We cannot serve out of obligation. Do you know what? I'm going to say this. You can serve out of obligation, and you can serve out of a desire to do good, but in the long run, it won't do you any good. Because the cost is too high. The cost is too high for you personally. But for you to serve your enemies in the light of the salvation that God has given you is a different motivation. It is empowered by Christ because he's the one that invites you into his work. So when we say, do as Jesus did and say what Jesus said, that we say it's simple and not easy, it is. It is simple. Live in the light of your salvation. Talk to Jesus as often as you can to do the work that he's called you to do. Simple, but it's not easy. But it's, be, it's because within our nature, we want to do things that glorify us. And so we will serve out of a desire to get recon, uh, recognized. You know, we'll speak out of a desire to get told that we're amazing. But that's not the point. We can only serve fully out of the understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done. Jesus offered his betrayer salvation. Jesus offers us salvation. So in light of that, how can we not serve the one who served us and gave everything? Such a familiar story. And one that God has just... He almost dropped a bomb in my life this week of just how incredible, how incredible my salvation is. My prayer is just this week being, God, do not let me become calloused over to the understanding of what that means. That it is such a, a a part of who I am as a Christian, that it just starts to lose its kind of sharpness and its goodness. Talks in the scriptures about bringing us back to our first love, that idea like, I was nothing before Christ. I was dead. My sin made me dead. And Christ has made me alive. This is the gospel. This is the good news of who Jesus is. And the only way that we serve, the only way 
that we can be sure of the story that we're telling on a Sunday, be sure of what we know in our hearts is to continually come back to the one who continually saves us. So it was another poke in the ribs for me. Abby, the reason that you don't share me is because you've forgotten how amazing my salvation is. It's become, it's become cerebral in your mind and it hasn't sparked your heart again. You know, if we fully embraced again what it means to be saved by the King of Heaven as a result of him coming down being like us, dying on a cross, and again raising on the third day to take our sins away, we would not leave this place without talking to everyone and anyone. But it has to come from the relationship with Jesus. We can't just do it out of obligation. So what we're going to do is we're going to respond And I was just asking God, I was like, God, your word is so good. Your word brings life to us. That how do we respond? How do we respond? How can I not just... in a sports hall, in a random place in Cardiff, how can I not, after hearing the message of your salvation, that you would offer me the, the choicest meal at the table, how can I not drop to my knees? How can I not sacrifice who I am because of all that you are in me? How can I not begin to gain a tr trust that you are good, that you know what is life, that you have greatness for my future because of you, not because of anything of this world? And so we don't do it with what bells and whistles. We don't. We can make space so that it feels more comfortable, yes, but ultimately this is about your heart and God. What is it that the true message of salvation brings to mind for you in this moment? Our world struggles with stillness and silence. But the Bible says in the stillness, you are there, you whisper, you, you talk to us. If you're not a Christian here or you've, you've turned away from God, I feel it would be a disservice to who Jesus is to not offer you the opportunity to come to Christ. Now, this has nothing to do with us. We don't 
We don't hold any power. We don't, we don't manage or wield any relationship between you and God yourself. But we do want to offer the ability just to come back to Jesus or meet him for the first time. Salvation is yours if you accept it. So if that's you, just, just simply or quietly, just in your heart, just I'd encourage you just to say, Jesus, I'm here. And it's important that we recognize where we've, where we've gone wrong, that the reason we need Jesus is because we've done things poorly. Even if, like I said, you know, we feel like the Pharisee, we feel like Simon, who is an all right person, but we know, we know we've fallen short. We know we can't get it right by ourselves. And so we're sorry. We're sorry for what we've done, Jesus. And, and just invite him into your heart. Say, so Jesus, I want to journey with you. I, there is something in this. And you will get all the answers. Maybe you won't get all the answers, but there'll be something in your heart that you just know that this is that moment for you. And if that is, I would encourage you to, to take this moment with Christ, but also afterwards, I would encourage you to come and speak to one of the team. And it's not because we want to make a spectacle of you, but it's because we want to rejoice with you and we want to pray with you. We want to stand with you as you start this journey again. For some of us, I just think we need to come back to our first love. We've been seduced by the things of the world or we've allowed our faith to get dusty or cerebral. Our faith is worth so much more than that. Lord, I pray that where we have taken on your works ourselves and tried to do them in our own strength or by our own ability, I would ask that you forgive us. Lord, I'd ask that even if our intentions were right, Lord, we know now that we can't do this by ourselves and we should never want to that the decision is yours, Lord, and we hand over control again. Lord, that we can do that because you reveal to us again how incredible and miraculous your salvation is. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to find out more about us, visit our website, capcitycardiff.org.uk.